Please turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 8. In our preaching series in Acts, those of you who have been with us and those who are joining us today, we've been looking at our life and witness of Jesus Christ through the lens of the kingdom of God. In Acts 1, we read where Jesus, before he ascended into heaven, he met with his disciples for 40 days. And we read that what he spoke about with his disciples was the kingdom of God. This is consistent with Jesus' entire ministry here on earth. The very first words of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark, his own introduction, really, to his own earthly ministry were this. The time has come, he said, the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. And Matthew tells us the same. As soon as John the Baptist is thrown into prison, Matthew tells us from that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of God is near. One way then I've suggested to you that we can look at the life and witness of believers as we follow in the footsteps of Jesus is that as Christians, we also are about the business of bringing the good news of the kingdom of God to the world, just like Jesus did and now does again through us. And so as we make our way through the book of Acts, we've been looking at what that's like. What can we expect to encounter when we bring the kingdom of God to the world? And even how is it that we are to bring the kingdom of God? And you see on the list, the font keeps getting smaller on the screen. Our growing list of kingdom of God characteristics. Now, this week, my initial plan was to introduce the Apostle Paul to you, Saul of Tarsus. But as with many of my plans, have you ever had this experience? God often reveals a different plan along the way. My, um, my dad often encourages me with the saying, when we make our plans, God laughs. When we follow his plan, God smiles. It's always a very helpful reminder to me to be constantly after God's plan rather than my own. My plan this week was, well, I'll summarize Acts 8 this morning and we'll spend the majority of our time in Acts 9 talking about the Apostle Paul. Every time I tried to simply summarize Acts 8, you know, I kept running into so much there that uh, I just really wanted to share with you. And so I finally gave in. And uh, we're going to spend this morning in Acts 8. And then next week, Lord willing... <laughs> We'll talk about Paul in Acts 9. So if you showed up this morning with your heart set on Paul, now's the time to storm out in disgust. Okay? No one's leaving? Good. I hope you stay, because uh, this morning we get to talk about Samaritans and eunuchs of all people, and how intriguing is that? Yeah. Your Bibles are open to Acts 8. You recall last week, we saw where Stephen's death led to great persecution in Jerusalem, remember? And this had an immediate domino effect of causing the early Christians to scatter throughout Judea and Samaria. Jesus had told His disciples that they were to be His witnesses in Jerusalem 
and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And that's exactly where Luke takes us next. It's exactly what happens. Acts 8 tells us the story of Philip, one of those seven chosen to wait tables in Acts chapter 6. And we find Philip witnessing in Samaria and then in Judea. We read that Philip taught about Jesus, performed miracles, and healed many, casting out evil or unclean spirits in Samaria. And the people of Samaria believed, and they were baptized, including a magician named Simon. Simon, uh, I reminded of him, George, when you were talking this morning about buying Jesus' bones. Simon tried to buy the gift of the Holy Spirit. It got into a little argument with Peter. I don't know if he paid $29.95 or not, but he learned you can't buy the power of the Holy Spirit. This Samaritan revival made such a big splash that Peter and John came down from Jerusalem to check it out and also to pray that the people might receive the Holy Spirit. Those of you with us a few weeks back, you remember that Pentecostal package in Acts chapter 2? We see it again here. Belief, baptism, and the Holy Spirit go together hand in hand in hand. And Peter and John then returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel in many Samaritan villages. Now, the impact of our story this morning goes far beyond the geography of the gospel being spread to Samaria. What stands out about the Samaritan revival is that Samaritans and Jews wanted nothing to do with each other. The hatred between Samaritan and Jew was already centuries old. No one knows for sure even where the Samaritans came from originally. The best guess of biblical scholars is that Samaritans are the descendants of Israelites who were not destroyed or taken away into exile when Assyria or Babylon came sweeping through Israel centuries before. Instead, there were Jews, some of them, who remained in the land, but they intermarried with non-Jews, something strictly forbidden by God. And so when that remnant of Jews who were taken away into exile came back with Ezra and Nehemiah, remember your Old Testament, they found all of these half-Jews from mixed marriages living in the land. And in short, the Jews returning from Babylon didn't like it one bit, even excluding them from helping to rebuild God's temple. You can read about that in Ezra chapter 4. The Apostle John in the New Testament sums up how Jews felt about Samaritans by Jesus' day. In John 4 verse 9, John quite simply says, For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Close quote. Many of you recall the context of that um, scripture from John. Jesus encounters the Samaritan woman at the well, remember? And the woman is simply stunned that a Jewish teacher would even talk with her, let alone ask her for help. You are a Jew, she says, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? Yes, there is far more than geography afoot here in our passage this morning. 
There were serious barriers between Samaritans and salvation through Jesus, this Jewish Messiah. And that brings us to the next characteristic I'd like to throw out this morning about what's involved when we bring the kingdom of God to the world. Bringing the kingdom of God to the world is about crossing barriers. You know, it's Luke, our author of Acts this morning, who also wrote the gospel bearing his name, the gospel of Luke. And interestingly enough, the gospel of Luke is the only gospel that records the parable of the Good Samaritan. Did you know that? You remember that parable? The punch of that parable is that the Samaritan of all people is the hero. He's the neighbor to the dying man. The Samaritan of all people is the shocking answer to the question, who is my neighbor that I must love? It's the Samaritan. And then Jesus says, go and do likewise. In other words, go and love Samaritans. And the Jew says, oi, gavol, Samaritans, are you kidding me? And as the Gospel scatters from the Jerusalem persecution, look at the coincidental first stop. Samaria. And look at what the Gospel of Jesus Christ does when it gets there. It takes aim at that barrier between traditional enemies and it kicks it down. And Samaritans, of all people, are running around amok, believing, getting baptized, and being filled with the Holy Spirit. Go figure. What's Luke's point? I think in part his point is there are no barriers in the kingdom of God. Nothing can separate us or anyone from the love of God. Absolutely nothing. And Luke's not done. Even as his first century readers or hearers of this story, Jews or Jewish Christians in particular, even even as they're reeling from hearing or reading of the account of a Samaritan revival, Oigaval, as they're gaping open-mouthed in amazement that Samaritans of all people are responding to the Gospel of Jesus Christ, as they can't even believe their ears, Luke piles on the barrier-breaking love of God and gives us the story of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. Now, as soon as we say that word eunuch, we get to one of those topics, right? Where we might wonder, we talk about that in church? <laughs> you want to get a man's attention in particular, you know, start talking about eunuch or circumcision and whatever they're doing, they'll say, what? What'd you say? Well, it plays a pivotal part, in my opinion, in God's Word before us this morning. So my answer is, yeah, we can talk about that in church, and we should and we need to. I want to be uh, sensitive to the younger years among us this morning. So let me just say this. A eunuch is a man who can no longer have children. It may be because of something he did to himself, or it may be because of something someone else did to him. It was both... Um, you know, with the will and sometimes against the will. Eunuchs were important in the ancient world because kings and rulers found eunuchs to be very reliable, especially when entrusted with things like the king's harem or even in other areas of government where perhaps a, a more aggressive, self-motivated male might be tempted to act in his own best interest than in the interest of the king. 
Now, that's as far as I'm going this morning defining a eunuch. The rest is up to you, moms and dads. If your children want to know about more around Sunday dinner this morning, you can tell them. I know you're already practicing your responses, right? Go ask your father. Go ask your mother. So eunuchs are men that cannot have children. They're barren. There's a barrier between them and a life-producing life. And there's another barrier, at least, a eunuch faces. God said in Deuteronomy 23 that no one who has been emasculated by crushing or cutting may enter the assembly of the Lord. And so a eunuch was barred from full participation in the community of believers. In the temple in Jerusalem are several courts or areas The outermost court surrounding God's great temple was called the Gentile court. And Gentiles were prohibited from the inner courts of the temple, which was for Jews only. In fact, the Jews built a small barrier around the inner courts, a low wall. The historian Josephus tells us that every few paces around that barrier, there hung a sign. And the sign warned the Gentiles that if they were caught crossing this barrier, no one would be responsible for what would happen to them. They were subject to the death penalty. One more piece of background here. How do you suppose Jews felt about eunuchs in general? Deuteronomy 23 is certainly a clue. What was the first thing? Do you remember what God told Adam and Eve to do? He just gets done creating everything, you know, in the universe. Finally gets around to creating man and woman. And what's the first thing that God can't wait to tell that first husband and wife? Do you remember? Be fruitful and multiply, he says. So how do you suppose Jews felt about a eunuch, whether or not by choice? How do you suppose they felt about him not being able to follow God's very first command to be fruitful and multiply? Probably about the same as they felt about Samaritans. Yet another, you know, group of dirty, rotten sinners, I suppose. With that background in mind, let's look at the text before us, beginning in Acts 8, verse 26. Now, an angel of the Lord said to Philip, go south to the road the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. And so he started out, and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. The man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way home was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. The Spirit told Philip, Go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you are reading? Philip asked. How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me? And so he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. The eunuch was reading this passage of Scripture from Isaiah. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before the shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. 
Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, Tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about? Himself or someone else? And then Philip began with that very passage of Scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. So here's the picture. A barren man is found in a barren place, a road in the desert. He's returning from Jerusalem where he went to worship in the temple. Only He could only get so close to God because of the barrier keeping him out of the inner courts. And he's sitting in his chariot reading a scroll of Isaiah, something that must have cost him a small fortune. They were very expensive. And there he sits, a barren man in a barren place. And look at what he's reading in Isaiah. He's reading from that part of Isaiah about the suffering servant. Someone the New Testament clearly identifies as Jesus. And the specific portion that has this barren man concerned includes the part that says the suffering servant will have no descendants. Who can speak of his descendants? The prophet writes. For his life was taken from the earth. Interesting. Do you suppose this barren man, the eunuch, who would not have any descendants himself, is identifying with this suffering servant who the prophet says will die without descendants? Who is this? The eunuch wants to know. Maybe he's thinking, because whoever he is, I know this pain of no descendants. And if he knows this pain of no descendants, I want to hear more. We're told that Philip tells the eunuch about Jesus. Beginning with that very passage the eunuch is reading. We don't have any more detail about what Philip specifically said. But because the eunuch is sitting there with his scroll of Isaiah, and because we're told emphatically that Philip began with that very passage the eunuch was reading, it seems reasonable at least to check out. I wonder if Philip may have continued reading from the scroll. After all, one primary place to help find meaning from any biblical text is from its immediate context in Scripture, yes? Well, let's explore that a bit. Is there anything in the immediate context of the passage the eunuch was reading that helps us Understand the answer to the eunuch's question. Who is this prophet talking about? Is there anything in context that speaks specifically to this barren man in a barren place? Listen to the passage that follows what the eunuch was reading that day. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked. Remember the two thieves on either side of Jesus on the cross. And with the rich in his death. Remember the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth, yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. 
And though the Lord makes His life a guilt offering, He will see His offspring and prolong His days. He will see His offspring, this man who died with no descendants. If you were a eunuch, if you were barren reading that verse, would you be intrigued? And the will of the Lord will prosper in His hand, for He bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. And then look at the next chapter. Chapter 54 begins with a singing barren woman. Sing, O barren woman, you who never bore a child, burst into song. Shout for joy, you who were never in labor, because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent. Stretch your tent curtains wide. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords. Strengthen your stakes. For you will spread out to the right and to the left. Your descendants will dispossess nations and settle in their desolate cities. A barren woman sings out of the stroll of Isaiah. Why? Because she's going to have so many kids, she's going to need a bigger tent. If you were barren, would you be intrigued? And then, because of what the suffering servant has done, because the suffering servant died for the sins of all the people, look at what Isaiah says next in chapter 56. Let no foreigner who has bound himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely exclude me from His people. And let not any eunuch complain I am only a dry tree. For this is what the Lord says, To the eunuchs who keep My Sabbaths, who choose what pleases Me and hold fast to My covenant, to them I will give within My temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will not be cut off. And foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to serve Him, to love the name of the Lord and to worship Him, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it and who hold fast to My covenant, these I will bring to My holy mountain and give them joy in My house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted at My altar, for My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations." Oh, as the eunuch reads that because of what the suffering servant has done, the suffering servant that Philip, I'm sure, along the way, we're told, identifies as Jesus. And as the eunuch reads that because of what the suffering servant has done, eunuchs of all people will be given a place of honor in God's temple. You remember the temple with the dividing barrier of death. Eunuchs will be given a place of honor in that temple. And they'll be given a name better than sons and daughters, an everlasting name that will not be cut off. And we'll have to ask Isaiah someday when he wrote that whether there was a play on words involving the eunuch. I don't know. Probably. How could you possibly write that? With yeah. How is our eunuch feeling right about now? In the same context, context Philip and the eunuch perhaps read from Isaiah 55 which says, Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. Let's look back at Acts chapter 8 where we left off reading in verse 36. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, Look, here's water. Why shouldn't I be baptized? 
And he gave orders to stop the chariot. And then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away. And the eunuch didn't see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. And I picture the eunuch perhaps with tears running down his barren face in this barren place of a desert, suddenly coming across water. Look! Here is water. Why shouldn't I be baptized? Even me, a barren outsider in a barren place who has suddenly come across water, the symbol of life, why shouldn't I be baptized? Perhaps more of a triumphant exclamation than a question. Why shouldn't I be baptized? Wouldn't you like to be there that day and see that baptism? Do you suppose that eunuch ran into the water? Maybe it was one of the very first cannonballs into the water. I'm not barren anymore. I'm going to be given a name in Christ Jesus. An everlasting name. I am accepted into God's great family. No more barrier walls in God's temple. Cannonball! And I can't help but think of Paul's words in his letter to the Ephesians. Remember? When he writes that because of what Jesus had done, his sacrifice has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, Paul writes, in context between Jew and Gentile. Why? So that all may come in, Jew and Gentile alike, to worship the living God, cannonball, and a barren man rejoices, just like the singing woman in the Isaiah scroll before him. Because in Christ Jesus, He is barren no more. I've so far emphasized the fact that the man Philip met in the desert was a eunuch. And how that condition seemed an insurmountable barrier to full participation in the kingdom of God. The other possible barrier here is that the man is an Ethiopian. We're told that. The word Ethiopia literally means dark complexion. He was from northeast Africa and had darker skin, probably. I don't doubt that this Ethiopian man felt all the more out of place because he looked different than God's chosen people, the Jews, or because he had different cultural practices or norms than others in God's family. Did you catch the end of the passage that we read from Isaiah 56, or what Steve Burns, our choir director, said in introducing the song, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, for all races, for all cultures. No doubt the Ethiopian's joy stemmed from this promise realized as well. The early church faced barriers head-on. Barriers between the early Jewish Christians and traditional enemies and sinners like Samaritans or even emasculated men of a different race or nation like the Ethiopian eunuch. Barriers that the blood of Jesus knocks down. You ever paused to consider where we are in Acts, what comes just after it? I mean, you ever pause to look at the progression of people? that Luke gives us as the very first who responded to Jesus when the Gospel exploded out of Jerusalem? I mean, look at them. 
There's Samaritans. And then in the next, in the same chapter, an Ethiopian eunuch. And then in the next chapter, a radical, murdering Pharisee named Saul. And then in the next chapter, Acts 10, there's a Roman centurion of all people. What a motley crew. Do you think Luke's trying to make a point here? There are no barriers among us that the cross of Jesus cannot cross. And if Jesus gave His very life to knock these barriers down, why is it that we often spend so much time and energy pretending there are barriers there? Or even building them up? Who are the Samaritans and the Ethiopian eunuchs in the world today? Who are they for you? Maybe you have a different answer than someone else. Who are the the dirty, rotten sinners that we don't associate with? Who are our enemies that maybe, if we're honest, in our heart of hearts, we don't really care, you know, not so much whether they respond to Jesus? Do we still struggle with all sorts of barriers today? If the early church made such a point of reaching across such barriers, shouldn't we? One of the many things that I've been thrilled to see during our short time here at West Bowles is the dedication to reaching across barriers with the love of Christ. A few examples, the inner city kids and their families. Good job. African widows. Way to go. Our friends south of the border in Mexico. Yes. Good job, West Bulls. Keep it up. And yet, can we do more to reach across barriers? When I was trying to identify people that the church often has a hard time reaching, when I was trying to, I asked myself, you know, if Acts 8 was written today, where would Philip have gone? Today, for the Samaritans, I came up with Muslims, a traditional enemy claiming to be following the same God, someone we wouldn't associate with. For the Ethiopian eunuch, I came up with the gay community, outcasts because of a sin closely associated with gender, Outcasts we seem to have a deep distaste for because of you know that particular lifestyle or sinful choice. Imagine a church that has a significant missions and outreach heart for Muslims in this day and age. Imagine a church that makes a special loving effort to reach the gay community with the love of Jesus Christ. I wonder what would happen Or don't we even go there because we're plagued by things like, or we say things like, ah, what's the use? Muslims in the gay community, are you serious? They'll never listen. Why bother? Boy, I'm glad that Philip didn't feel that way. And I know not every Muslim or homosexual is interested in responding to the gospel like the Samaritans in the eunuch of Acts 8. 
Not every one of them is sitting in a chariot somewhere reading a scroll of Isaiah, right? But if we don't continue to make the effort, every effort, how will we know where they are? How will we know whether or not they are interested in responding? I'm fairly certain of one thing. If we only yell that their choices are sinful, if we only respond to their hard words with hard words of our own, the barriers are going to stay in place. And they might even grow stronger. When the news first broke about HIV and AIDS, do you know what one of the first and loudest responses was from the Christian community? It went something like this. Well, that's God's judgment on them for their immoral, sinful behavior. They're getting what they deserve. Ouch. Whether or not that's true, whether or not God's judgment is somehow in play here, and who can say for sure other than God Himself, is that really our first and best response? Shouldn't our response be more like, oh no. How awful. What a terrible thing. How can we help? How can we help in Jesus' name? And if you're like me, you're tempted by a question or a comment or a thought that goes something like this. Yeah, but, Pastor, if we respond in love, they will think that we approve of their sin. You ever get that one? Here's my response to that. Jesus didn't seem to worry so much about that. He loved on, he healed, he touched, he hung out with, he sought out, he cared for sinners every chance he got. And yes, while he was loving on them, he talked and walked a life obedient to God, often encouraging them and instructing them at the right moment to go and sin no more. While He was loving on them, He talked about repentance and the kingdom of God. While He was loving on them. And He trusted that to be enough. And do you know what? It was. Franklin Graham in Iraq today. You know what he's doing? He's sending medicine and food. No strings attached to the Iraqi people to help. He's been doing that throughout the war. Do you know who his biggest critics have been? I think I've mentioned that to you before. It just sticks in my craw. Other Christians. How can you just give them that? You know, I, you have to like timeshare it or something. You know, you get those free vacations, but they lock you in a room. For nine hours, you go here free, but for nine hours we're going to sell you this timeshare and won't take no for it. That's not, let's not do that to the good news of Jesus Christ. You know who Jesus reserved his harshest words for during his ministry? Scathing words. His harshest words were for those who were considered the religious of his day. And do you know why? Because they talked the talk of the love of God, but didn't do it. What more can we do to cross barriers with the good news of Jesus Christ? 
I don't have all of the how answers. But I'd like to grapple with that question with you. We need to grapple with that question and lean against it, my friends, if we are to be effective in bringing the kingdom of God to a world desperate for it. We need to be doing that if we're going to cross barriers with the cross of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, it's so tempting to us to stay comfortable and to associate with people just like us. Father, would you please turn our heads and our ears toward your word this morning in Acts 8 and convict us that in bringing the kingdom of God to the world, we need to be about crossing barriers. Barriers that the devil puts up, that we ourselves in our own human nature tend to put up between us and those that we don't feel are like us. And oh, Father, the good news of Jesus Christ, as Paul has said, is that because of his death and sacrifice, he kicks barriers down between and among us. And God's love flows like a mighty river into everyone's race or culture or circumstance. And oh, Father, would you help equip us and enable us and give us the passion to ride that wave of God's love into a world that is desperate for it. Father, I pray and ask your blessing on my brothers and sisters here at West Bowles. May you bless them and keep them and cause your face to shine upon them, Father. And would you give them your peace, your shalom. And it's in the great name of Jesus, the Messiah our Savior, that we pray. Amen. Amen. Next week, Lord willing, the Apostle Paul, remember your clocks and have a good week. We'll see you then. God bless you.